the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband is the producer of the podcast, and he does most of the behind the scenes work. If you have a story you'd like to share, reach out to us. Our email address is the addiction podcast at yahoo.com. We'll send you a registration form so we can get all of your information. We'll get you scheduled if we think that your story fits with our podcast. Today's episode is episode number 268. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a good review because then Google will find us. When people need help or they just need advice or they don't know what to do about addiction, whether it's their own addiction or a loved one, then Google will put us up there and they can listen to the podcast. Also, if you can go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel, then you'll see us that way. And you'll actually be able to see the people that we interview, which we didn't do for the first couple years. Also, if you then give us a thumbs up on our videos, once again, Google will find us when people look for help with addiction. And if you ring the bell, you'll get a notification every time there's a new podcast. So without further ado, today we have an interview with a gentleman named Norman Wilch. Norman was a police officer for 26 years, 16 of those he served as an undercover narcotics agent, rising to the position of commander. He obviously experienced many traumatic incidents during his career. When he left, he was diagnosed with an incurable neuromuscular disease. And after 30 surgeries, he was, um, he had developed an open, After 30 surgeries, he developed an addiction to opioids. Not surprising. I'm sure that they prescribed them in force. Also, his daughter was diagnosed with a serious illness with a poor prognosis, and he went into a downward spiral from there. He finally ended up in federal prison and found God and turned his life around. So let's talk to Norman Wilsch. Norm Welsh, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing your story. Your story is unique. I think I say that many times, but it is. It's unique. And I appreciate you talking to us today. Well, thank you. I'm honored. Thank you. Oh, you're so kind. So tell us, take us back. Just tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I know you were a police officer. What led you to that? And you worked narcotics. Did anything lead up to that? Tell us. Well, my dad was an auto mechanic and he wanted me to follow through in his shoes. And, and I did for a little bit, but I don't think that was for me. I wasn't really happy. And one day I went on a ride along with um, another police officer and I, I felt it was a calling. So I put myself through uh, police academy and I, I got a job pretty much and I broke my dad's heart, but he, he later understood. So that's so how you- I became officer. Yeah. So you, were you in high school when you did the ride along? No, I was just out of high school and working full time for my father in an auto repair shop. Understood. Well, before we go any further, thank you for the years of service that you did. You know, it's not everybody that is willing to put their life on the line. And um, I appreciate it. Thank you. So, okay, so you're a police officer and um how did you get into narcotics? Did you see something that made that? It, what brought that about? Well, as I was working patrol, I realized that 
majority of the crimes revolve around drugs. I mean, there's the drug addicts are out there. They're stealing in order to pay for their habits. And so now you got to remember what, when you go to the police academy, they don't teach you how or why people do the things they do, right? They just say, this is a criminal and you arrest a criminal. And that's period. I mean, either you're good or you're bad. There's no gray area. And so that's the mentality that I had also. And my father was a a military guy. So it was a a pretty strict upbringing. And it was the usual things, you know, don't cry. Men don't cry and men don't show feelings and stuff. And that's what the police academy did too, is you have to be a warrior, right? But when I realized that, everything revolved around drugs, I focused on um, narcotic enforcement. So I would go out and um, <laughs> see, I regret all this now because I didn't know, but uh, I arrest a lot of drug addicts and they led to the drug dealers. And, and that's how I got into narcotics. But looking back now, I, I see that um, maybe that line of law enforcement is um, can be changed a little bit. It- Interesting. I, I was just I was just going to say um, we did an interview with the local sheriff and, you know, he he made the point, you know, we're not going to law enforce our way out of the addiction problem in this country. And when you said that the training was very black or white, like the guy's either he's either bad or he's good. That's where you get into a gray area, because there are so many good people who get addicted to drugs and okay, then they do bad things, but what do you address there? Are you addressing the guy because he did something bad, or do you take a look at the fact that he's addicted to drugs and cannot control that and will do pretty much anything to maintain his addiction? So um, I, I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah, back then, I mean, this is going to be when I started was the early 80s. So it was a war on drugs. Yeah. So there was no... Um, letting people go it wasn't really an option but until you get put in that position you you think everything's going good hey um we're we're doing a great job but then when i went to prison i realized that wow that whole um um, circum the the whole the way we do things is flawed yeah and there needs to be a multi-prong approach so um, I was going to say, you just totally jumped different. way ahead. You got to lead us up to I'm how sorry. you ended up in prison. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sorry, but um, that's OK. So you were an undercover narcotics cop. I, you know, just I'm excuse me for diverging for a second. We interviewed a fellow who was DEA, who was one of those people that dropped out of um, helicopters into the jungles of, jungles of Bolivia to shut down the, the labs. OK, the, what you did kind of similar you're like putting yourself like in the jaws of the beast, so to speak. Yeah, not so much uh, as in Colombia, but yeah, I ran um, several narcotic teams, which were the meth lab teams and uh, the cocaine teams, but mostly I was on a methamphetamine team. And then I got promoted and I went to a countywide drug task force. So we dealt with the entire county, but yeah, it's, um, it's not as glamorous as it seems, because most of the time you're sitting in a car doing surveillance. Um, There are some days which are fun where you get to work undercover and actually um, pretend you're somebody you're not. And those, those days were fun. But again, I I think we're focusing on on the wrong spot, but the DEA guys jumping out of a helicopter, that's a whole different level. I wasn't in that. Well, yeah, but you say fun, Mm -hmm. also dangerous and stressful. You know, I mean, you get found out when you're undercover, 
game over. Yeah, I had a couple close calls where I thought they were going to beat my butt. Um, I really did um, with some beer bottles. They they said, we know you're a cop, and but I was able to talk my way out of it. I was pretty good <laughs> at, at talking. So um, it, it, it can be very dangerous. I, I know officers who have been shot during undercover drug buys, hand-to-hand drug deals. Um, mostly people, when they realize that you are a cop, they try to get away. They don't really intend on hurting you. And, and that's where my experience has been in. Mm. So how long were you, um, how long were you on the police force and, do, and well, how long did you do narcotics? Did you work with narcotics? Well, as a, a uniformed police officer, I worked um, nine years with a, a local city police here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I worked three years of that, so to a total of 12 in narcotics uh, at the city level. And then I felt well, I had experienced so many traumatic events that I was really suffering from depression. I hadn't been diagnosed yet with PTSD, but something was really wrong. I, I was suffering from um, severe depression and anxiety. So I felt maybe that the deaths that I saw on patrol were, were bothering me. So I went to the California Department of Justice, so the state narcotics. So I quit there and I worked there for 13 years. So I worked a total of 16 years undercover. In undercover, I mean, I don't mean like working the streets undercover, but in, in not in uniform. Understood. Understood. You know, not not to make light of it, but I would be surprised if someone in your position didn't suffer from PTSD. I mean, I don't think that the normal, the average human being, even the above average human being can see the things that you saw and not be traumatically effect, affected, I'm just saying. Uh, it's, and they don't say this on the, the job perspective, right? They don't say that you, you will see people decapitated, you will see a plane crash. I mean, my third month on, I had a plane crash that killed 14 people and injured like 55, you know, in, in the mall on the night before Christmas. You know, oh. it, it, they, don't, they don't tell you this. And um, I was able, because of my upbringing from my father, I think I was able to deal with it pretty well at the time. And I think that's what made me a good cop. But everything catches up with you. The more you push your emotions down, the, the harder they're going to spring up. You know, it's like that analogy of the beach, beach balls. You're pushing those beach balls down. But one of these days, man, they're going to come up with fury. And, and it did for me. Yep. Okay, so you're now, you're working, tell me again where you were working toward the end of your career? Uh, the California Department of Justice. They have okay. a narcotic division. Okay. And what, um, what happened from there? Where, what, where did you go from there? Well, at that time, when I got hired, I got diagnosed with a incurable neuromuscular disease. So it's peripheral neuropathy, but I'm not a diabetic, but I lost all the feeling in my feet and then in my hands. And then it was complicated by another muscular disease, what's called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, which deadens all the muscles in your hands and your feet. Oh, my goodness. So what was happening is my first few years there at, at, the, um, at the DOJ was I was getting ulcers on the bottom of my feet, you know, huge blisters. And we couldn't explain them. And um, eventually required me to go through 30 surgeries in a 10-year period. <sighs> and it was... Um, it was really stressful to go through. And, and that's when my PTSD really popped out. And I think that stress really um, brought the PTSD on. I was diagnosed with PTSD then. 
And then during that time, they kept giving me Vicodin and mm. Oxycontin for the pain. And I understood it, but the neuropathy took away the pain. And I'm not blaming doctors here. I mean, this is my own fault. I, I, I made my own decisions. But what I realized was that I didn't need the pills for the pain. But when I took the pills, it dealt with my emotions, mm. right? It, it really leveled out my anxiety and um, often panic attacks and stuff. So um, when I was working, I was still working uh, under those conditions. And um, I, I, it was hard to keep that secret, but I was doing still a good job, you know, even though I was pretty much high every, every day. How long did you get away with it? Uh, almost six years. Wow. You know, and um, it, I think a lot of it was because they knew that I was suffering from some type of illness that no one really ever asked. You know, my, my department never said, hey, what's what's wrong? I mean, I'm doing almost two surgeries a year, which is requiring me to be off like six months a year. And um, I was so well respected that they let me work what's called light duty. So I was bit like I was casted up but I was allowed to still come in for, for paperwork and stuff like that. I wasn't able to go out in the field. Did you and have so a they, wife at the time? Were you married? Do you have yeah. a family? Yep. I have a, a wife and I got five kids and my wife already saw it before I, I left the police department. And she said, please, I, I see the difference in you. I, I see the changes in you. You know, you, I was isolating. Um, I wouldn't go, go out to family events. I wouldn't go out to sporting events anymore. Um, I had a short fuse and, um, I was getting mad and sometimes I would just lay in bed all day when I didn't have to work. And she was begging me, please, Norm, please, you got to go see somebody, but that's not what a cop does. A cop fireman, um, emergency room, physician, nurses, Hey, we're warriors. We work. You tough it out. You tough it out. You are a warrior. Warrior Yeah. And the worst thing for police is that when you, or if you were to go and seek out help, Right. So if I told them that, um, which, which this did happen, I almost killed myself when I put the gun in my mouth. So if I were to tell a psychologist, hey, last night I put a gun in my mouth, the, the first call would be to my chief. Game over. Yep. Yeah, that's it. You, you're, you're done. So yep. and then even if they put you off on light duty or, or administrative leave, everybody knows, you know, it, it would get out so fast. And when somebody is perceived weak, the other officers don't want to work with them. Right. And I think it's twofold. I think it, they worry about their safety and they also worry about their uh, mortality. Right. If, if he's got it, man, you know, can I get it? And so they don't want any part of it. And, and very few, very few officers even came by the house to say, Hey, what, what's going on with your feet? I mean, this is crazy. And um, it, it's, it becomes problematic. And that's why I want to do these things. And, and talk about it because I want to get reduce the stigma. There, there's such a stigma for seeking out help, and, and not only for first responders, but a lot, a lot of people. There, a lot of cultures. My dad's culture, German. Man, if you you think if, if they see you being weak, oh man, you know the, the family just comes down on you. And and in the military, we had a gentleman on who, you know, had PTSD, and he, um, you know, the, he said the military wasn't set up to handle it. You know, because I think I think also I now I'm just throwing this out there. They're possibly um, the powers that be in police departments and DOJs become a little bit afraid of are they responsible? You know, are they culpable for what they put the employees through? 
and um, yeah, I don't know, like CYA. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It's like. In, in- in the military, it's twice as bad because once they realize that you have PTSD, they strip you of your um, duties, right? If you have a secret um, clearance, they'll just strip you of all that. So yeah. it's, it's punitive just because you have a mental illness. Right, right. So it's, right. it's not that bad in, in first responders yet. And I, I know that it's changing now. I mean, but it's like a battleship, right? It's just the, the turning is so slow that it, it, the guys that I talk to that are still on the street tell me the same thing. Hey, it's still the same. Yeah. You know? Yep. So we need we need to to change that stigma and and make it okay to not be okay. Yep. Yeah. You know, it again. I excuse me for my stream of consciousness, but there was a woman that we had on who left prison and had to actually fight her way into a job with a um, major computer company because mm-hmm. she was an ex felon and an ex addict, and so she goes around and she talks to. Um, you know, leaders of industry to say, you you need to hire these people. Well, it's a similar thing, I think, with first responders and police and military in that, you know, you you need to help these people get back on their feet. But, you know, when I look at you, Norm, and the years of experience that you have, I mean, what a shame to not have you with all your experience on the force being able to, you know, to do what you were doing. Anyway. There's my stream of I'll be quiet now. (laughs) Well, what I'm trying to do is um, I've got, uh, I'm a a drug addiction counselor now, and I've got years of of training, and I'm trying to be a first responder chaplain. Okay. the problem is because I'm labeled as a corrupt cop because of the things I did, nobody will really talk to me. So I Wait a second. How come you're labeled a corrupt cop? What what, is that? How come? What happened in my deepest, darkest um, <laughs> uh, depression, the, the last straw was my daughter. She was 23 at the time, and she um, developed liver tumors. And when we went to the doctor, the doctor said that we had to um, send her to UCLA Medical Center, and it was going to be a survival percentage, uh, the surgery 50%, so she could die after the surgery. And that put me in a downward spiral and just, you know, it was just went crazy. About a week later, I attempted suicide and I, it was just off the hook with the pills and stuff. And I, I let a guy, I, let me change that. I made the stupid decision to give a guy um, some, some methamphetamine and some marijuana out of the evidence lockers. So I basically stole the drugs and gave them to him. Um, those were my decisions, but I, I just don't know what it was. I kind of believe maybe it was a um, self-destructive technique. You know, I, I wasn't strong enough to kill myself. I wasn't, you know, brave enough to kill myself. So maybe I'm gonna gonna leave this um, by self-destructing. I, I don't know, but anyway, is, is that what, what led to is that what led to prison? Is that what? Yeah, okay. yeah. So I got a 14-year prison, federal prison sentence um, for for the theft of the drugs. Okay. And I went to federal prison for eight and a half years, and then because of COVID. In my disease that they let me out. But so is, that, is that where you got clean and you're clean and sober now though, right? I, I've been clean prison. Yeah. So okay. I'm clean 10 years. Okay. 10 so years you did now. that in prison. Yeah. And, okay. um, and while in prison, I received my master's degree in theology and counseling and a doctorate in Christian counseling and my degree in um, uh, drug and alcohol addiction. I saw that in your bio and but before we get too much into that i want you to tell us because we always ask and i know yours is a particularly spiritual one 
What was your point of no return when you were in prison? What was the point at which you said, I have to get clean and sober or my life's over and, you know, and what happened there with you? You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Well, actually that happened after my arrest. I was out on bail for actually two years and so finally, when I was able to bail out, I, I told my wife, I agree, I, I need to seek help. And I started seeing psychologists and um, psychiatrists specializing in police PTSD. And they saved my life, giving me coping skills to, to manage the PTSD. But after three years, um, two years out on bail and one year in prison, they sent me to a psychologist every, every um, week, was that there was no healing, right? And um what I wanted to do was I wanted to heal. I just didn't want to cope with these emotions. And then when I was out on bail, this divine intervention happened, what I believe was God, uh, a pastor friend of my father's ended up calling me and saying, Hey, you know, I didn't just invite you to church. But since that time I wasn't, I didn't believe in God because of all the things I saw, I, I could not believe and understand how there could be a kind, loving God with everything going on in the world. Right. So I just yeah. didn't believe. And so I was kind of trying to blow him off. But at the end of the conversation, he said, Hey, can I pray for you? And I said, sure. You know, and, and inside I'm like, you know, trying to watch whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, look at the TV. Yeah. So he said the sinner's prayer, which I had no clue what the sinner's prayer was. And he said, do you accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and savior? I just say, ah, sure. You know, I, I didn't know what to, I didn't want to be mean to him. So we hung up. I went back to the couch and sat with my wife and she looked at me and she realized something was, was different. And she said, what's wrong? I said, no, nothing's wrong. And she said, well, something seems weird. And then I thought about it and it was like a weight that was lifted off my shoulders. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I didn't believe, and I didn't have this, this wasn't a come to Jesus moment or anything. It was like, wow. And she said, maybe something is missing out of our lives. Maybe it's spirituality. You know, she grew up wow. um, in a Christian family and, but she never really pushed it because of me. And so we started going to church and you got to remember, I'm, I'm still got the cop mindset. So we go to this church and the church has people in there that tattooed up, tattooed faces. They're wearing shorts. I'm all dressed up, right? Cause I'm thinking it's just church. I gotta, I gotta wear nice clothes shorts the hat on sideways tattooed up faces sleeves 
And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, well, what am I getting myself into? But they were the kindest, most loving people you'd ever imagine. I mean, they came and they hugged me. I don't think they even knew who I was. They just saw a new face. They were so kind. The pastor was great. He's still a friend of mine today. Um, the, the sermons were awesome. So I kept going to church. Now, I still wasn't 100% sold on God. But my daughter was still going through this bi biopsy process. And so one day, one Sunday, in the middle of, in the middle of a sermon, not related, the, the pastor, his name is Jeff Kenny. Uh, he saved, he saved my sanity. He he stopped his sermon and said, "We want to pray for Norm's daughter." And the whole congregation at that at point prayed. And a week later, she got her biopsy. A week after that, we got the results, and the results were clean liver. There, there was no no. Oh. You you I saw the two scans, right? The one with the with the um, uh, spots on it, and the one without. And the doctor said, I, I don't know. And I, at first I was mad saying, hey, you misdiagnosed her. You don't know what you caused me. I mean, I went to, uh, I'm going to prison because of it. <laughs> and uh, he goes, no, no, no. And he showed me all the set, second. So that's when I finally truly believe that there is a God. And I think God had to do something big in my life in order for me to believe. And so that's when yeah. the, the moment came. Okay, I've got to, I got to straighten up. I, I can't, I was always looking for an outside source to fix the inside problem, right? Mm -hmm. And because I couldn't do it, the, the drugs came in to where at least I would be masking everything. And that's what most people do today too. And that and that's huge. That is huge. Um, you know, mm. with anybody that's an addict, they can't look outside and say, oh, it's because my mother was mean to me. Oh, it's because my father didn't pay attention to me. You know, it isn't even because maybe I was abused as a child that you have to heal what's inside before I think you can get better. And I think that's huge that you you got there and look at where you are today. You're you're coaching now and you're counseling people. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and where you do it. And yeah, well, I work at a men's residential uh, rehabilitation facility here in, in, the, in the city that I live and. I thought at first it was going to be very difficult because a cop trying to do groups with addicts, you know, I thought for sure. But when I told them my story, it actually made things better, right? Because now they're seeing, okay, maybe it's not just us. Anybody can become addicted. Can happen right? to uh, anyone. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, a cop is no better than an addict. And, and, and so they get to see this and, I'm really hoping that in the future, uh, and I, I've talked to some cops that were um, alcoholics, and I'm really hoping that in the future, there could be some kind of ministry for first responders, like being a chaplain or whatever. But like I said, like I said that community is not accepting me right now, but it, it's just wonderful to, because in prison, that's where I learned why people do the things they do, right? I mean, I had no idea, you know, why an addict would would use drugs you know i never thought about okay this this kid was molested by his, his uncle at five I, I i would never thought about that my attitude back then was hey just pull up your bootstraps come on stop just stop yeah way easier said than done as right? you know yeah you just cannot stop on a dime like that it's you need to deal with the emotions that are causing your addiction and that's where I think that I can help because I come from a more spiritual standpoint to where we look into the root cause. And I, I think secular psychologists do that also. 
but in most um, rehabilitation facilities, they don't really do that. But, but we try to get down to the root cause and deal with that in a biblical sense. Well, psychologists are going to help with the mental aspect. And we typically say that there are three different aspects to addiction. There's physical addiction, you know, and that, you know, when you withdraw, you get dope yeah. sick and everything. But there's mental addiction, but then there's spiritual addiction. And I think that if you don't do all three of those, if you don't address all three, you know, pretty much everybody we've talked to that's clean and sober, however they did it, they had all three. They addressed all three. Do you know what I mean? And yes. they had some sort of a spiritual awareness of one kind or another, and that, you know, contributed to their being clean and sober. You know, I, I did want to say one thing, and that is that I, I think that, I think that don't stop going to the DOJ there and pushing for what you do. We have a gentleman that we've had on the podcast a couple times, and he was in prison twice, and he's a former addict. And when he got out, what he wanted to do was go into schools and lecture about drugs and do drug education. And, of course, the first thought was, you know, schools are like, we don't want an ex-felon coming into the school. I don't remember exactly how he finally did it, but he didn't stop. And he goes into, he went into like something like 700 schools a year before COVID shut him down. So I, I just, I, I know you're not going to give up on it, but I just think that that's something that bears repeating. And, you know, I, I think that the powers that be maybe don't understand how widespread what you went through is in the department because it's not socially acceptable within the mores of the group to admit it. And the fact that you were a policeman you're talking to your own kind. They're not, you know, like if I, like I could go in and talk to them about drug education, they look at me because she has no idea what we go through. Do you know what I mean? But you go in and you've experienced it. Anyway, just keep pushing. I okay. just, I, you know, if we have anybody that can help with that, I would, I would send them your way because you need to be doing exactly that with first responders. I mean, look at what they see and, you know, when they lose people and people die, it's like, oh, you know, and policemen, you guys need this kind of support. You policemen, military, first responders, you are some of the most valuable people that we have. You deserve the help more than anybody does. Do you know what I mean? So... Yeah, no, I'm trying. It, it's just a matter of proving to them that I'm a changed person because a, a lot of administrations talk the talk. Yeah, we're changing. We're, we're looking at, at better ways to take care of our officers. But that's a lot of that's just hype, right? Because the culture doesn't change. The, the, the department might change and, and allow more um, ways to, to manage that. However, there's still the culture where it says, well, I'm, I'm weak, but there's also the culture that's a lot of hypocrisy, right? I mean, there's a lot of cops that get DUIs and that are alcoholics, and, and I've seen several of them when I was working, and, and we don't say anything. We don't say anything because we know that this is the stuff we go through, and I believe that if there was a way to send officers to a place where it's more, I don't want to say secretive, but it's more out of the way that other officers will not find out. And that's why I wrote this book. I wanted to have the church be that place. And um, I wrote a book on, on healing that cops can, can go to a church. And even if they're not Christian or, or not spiritual, the, the, the secular 
treatment methods parallel. It's just a, it's a, a different way to do it. Instead of saying CBT, you know, for cognitive behavioral therapy, we go, okay, uh, what does the Bible say about this? And, and to, to focus your attention on what, what the Bible says. I think that's... I'm trying. Yeah, I, I, that's good. And don't give up. You know, I'm going to try and think of some ways we can help you. But say the name of your book. Tell people where they can find it. Tell people where they can find you. Should they want you to maybe do a talk? Do you do public talks? I sure do. My website is christ-centeredhealing.com. And you can learn more about the book and stuff there. You can buy it on Amazon. The name of the book is Christ-Centered Healing of Trauma with a subtitle of Healing a Broken Heart. And okay. I, I initially wrote it for, for first responders, but when I started helping the chaplain in, in, um, in Dallas, Texas, in the prison um, counseling guys, I realized that it, almost everybody's broken in some way, right? We've all suffered some kind of traumatic or overwhelming life event that kind of keeps us oppressed, right? We just can't move forward in our life. And that's why I, I geared it more to everybody. Yep. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate all of the years you worked on the police force. I appreciate what you're doing now and how you're giving back. Um, I just, I really appreciate you. And I appreciate you telling us your story because I know that, um, I know I say this every time, I apologize, but you know, the part of the life that you tell us about is not the part that you're most proud of necessarily. And so, um, you know, very well done on being clean and sober. And thank you for, you know, what you're doing. I, I just can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you. I mean, that means a lot to me, but I, the main message I want to get out to people is there's healing, you know, and what you're going through, th there might be a plan and purpose for it. You never know. Yep. I like it. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. I want to make a pitch. I obviously don't know all of the people that listen to this podcast, but if you think that Norm has something that he could offer to the first responders or to a police department that might help them be better police and stronger police and better EMTs and, and stronger EMTs, if you know someone who could help get him a foot in the door, please reach out to him. Once again, his website is christ-centeredhealing.com. And his book is on Amazon. It's called Christ-Centered Healing of Trauma, Healing a Broken Heart. And he it looks like he just finished a companion book. So that'll be out shortly. But I just feel that what Norm went through is probably something that more police and EMTs go through than we know because it's not the culture for them to admit that perhaps they need help. We know it's difficult for anybody to reach out and get help, but in certain professions like the military and the police, it's, it's just not accepted. You just don't do that. You just soldier on through and you warrior on through and you pull your bootstraps up and get through it. But that, that doesn't work all the time. There may be some instances where you can do that and you can get through a situation, but then there's maybe more work that has to be done after that. And I think Norm is well equipped to do that. So um, thank you so much for listening today. I hope you got something out of it. And once again, his, his name is Norm Welsh, 
W-I-E-L-S-C-H. And his website is Christ-CenteredHealing.com. Y'all have a great week. We'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.